Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, thanks to everybody who showed up to the uh, What's Next event. It was um, quite an ordeal in a pandemic and, more importantly, in an amidst a weirdly contested election to try and get people to show up on stuff and say things. Um, but we think it went pretty well and we're really grateful to everybody who was there. So thank you. And hopefully the next one will be in person. Uh, so today we have a remnant, uh, listener favorite, except for a handful of people for whom he is not their favorite, but that's good too. Um, and, uh, he's also one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite people and a former colleague of mine. And, um, uh, for a very brief time, a colleague of some people at the Atlantic, uh, and most, most tellingly, he is, uh, the author of a new book, which is a collection of some of his best stuff, uh, from over the last few years called big white ghetto. Uh, and it's got a great piece of toast on the on the cover which we can talk about in a second kevin williamson welcome back to the remnant thanks jonah how you doing uh as i was saying uh uh in the green room i i, I have some weltschmerz uh some world weariness as the as the the germans might say who were hmm. the owners of the most euphonious and poetic language uh how you doing uh, I'm well, thanks. I'm surprised to hear that I'm only the not favorite of a handful. Usually it's a couple <laughs> of a handful, you know. Well, I mean, I, I think you have some experience with this in that um, if you have a distinct voice, which I think is crucially important in our line of work, and it's something I think both of us, uh, for good or for ill, have, uh, the benefit of having a distinct voice is that people are... Um, you attract people who are interested in it and you repel people who are not. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think you can do one without the other. No. But, um, uh, so uh, I guess we should get some of the rank punditry just sort of out of the way. Do you have any, mm. we can do it very quickly because I, I, I don't, you know, it's one of these things where um, everything has been said, but not everybody has said it. So I'll give you a shot um, and maybe you have some new insight. But do you have any tea leaf readings about the election that are particularly of interest to you? Well, no, I mean, the election's over, clearly over. Um, you know, Carl Rove had a pretty good column in the Wall Street Journal this morning about recounts that have been successful in the past, which have been, you know, a matter of a few hundred votes, typically, right. you know, 200 votes, 300 votes, not 50,000 votes. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I wrote a piece a while back about uh, 
Putin. And the problem for people like Putin is there's no retirement plan for gangsters. You know, he has to hold on to power until he dies. And there are two ways to read that sentence. One is that he grows to a ripe old age while clinging to power. The other is that he doesn't cling to power and his life ends pretty quickly, either through some official means or more likely through some unofficial means. Uh, Trump's not quite in that position uh, because the United States really isn't very much like Russia. But I think he is in a, a defensive pattern because he's worried about not so much criminal indictment, although that is a possibility. Um, people I've talked to say they don't really think it's very likely that he's going to end up being indicted for anything. But he's also apparently got some, you know, some pretty big financial problems, you know, some few hundred million dollars in debt payments coming due that he's not sure if he can make. And I think he thinks, well, if I stay president or, um, or I become this kind of, you know, shadow president, maybe I can, you know, push some of this stuff to the back burner, make it go away or use it as a way to garner resources or to make it look like these efforts to collect money that I owe to people or some kind of political persecution. So, um, I think he's just trying to um, delay the inevitable. No, I agree with that. Um, well, I mostly agree with that, and I'm 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 was going to get to that. I what I actually meant by the election was the the election. <laughs> I'm like yeah. you're in Texas, right? And um, there were many there was there was much chatter before the election about how Texas was trending purple and all of these mm -hmm. various things and that the Dems could actually flip it. And it turns out that, um, that not to strain the metaphor too much, but that, that Texas was the Alamo for the Democrats in a lot of ways. They, <laughs> lo they lost everything, as far as I can tell, or almost everything, including, including the race for Will Hurd's seat, which I was told was going to be the end, you know, it was that Will Hurd's seat was never going to be held by a, Dem by a Republican ever again. And yeah. Republicans even won that. Um, you know, is you know Ben Sass asked about this, and he said, "Well, this just proves that we're a center-right nation still." Blah 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 blah. And I, I don't, not, I don't mean to be dismissive of it, but mm -hmm. is that your takeaway from it, or is there something? No, else I think the Republicans are in, in trouble in Texas, and things are moving in the Democratic direction, just not as quickly as some people had expected. You know, Trump did a little less well in Texas this time than he did last time. Uh, in 2016, he did a lot less well in Texas than he did in surrounding states like Oklahoma and Arkansas and Louisiana, and much, much less well than he did in states like, you know, Wyoming, places like that. Um, 2018 was a wake-up call for a lot of Republicans in Texas. They lost a bunch of races they hadn't expected to lose. Uh, a lot of Republicans who lost that year lost with money in the bank, some of them with six-figure sums in the bank. Um, they thought they just didn't have to campaign. And I think that um, that got their attention. They have had a really intelligently run voter registration drive uh, for the last couple of years, and they think they've added at least 100,000 Republicans to the, uh, to the rolls. And they've also got a pretty sophisticated, low-key, get-out-the-vote operation. So I think they campaigned better than uh, they did in 2018 and 2020, and it showed. Um, but, you know, a lot of these races are still really quite close. Uh, you know, there are races in Dallas that were settled by few hundred votes. Uh, some of those Texas legislative races were really quite close as well. Um, although some of them less close than they were last time, like the um, 108th in Dallas that I wrote about, which is uh, kind of um, a weird district in that it's got, you know, sort of part of downtown and part of a pretty wealthy area called Highland Park. And the Republican won that by only, I think, 220 votes in 2018. It's a district that went pretty strongly for Hillary in 2016. 
And he won it by a bit more this time, although still only in the hundreds of votes. So, um, no, they uh, they campaigned better than, than a lot of people expected them to. But their position continues to diminish in the cities and in the inner suburbs. And I think that's going to be a problem for them. It's going to be particularly a problem in presidential elections because um, Texans vote a lot more heavily Republican in state and local races than they do in presidential races. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, Trump underperformed the Republican congressional candidates by like five or six points. Um, I haven't seen the numbers for uh, for this year yet, but I'm sure it's probably around the same. So, uh, you know, 52 percent is not a great number for a state that's supposed to be the most, you know, conservative and Republican and ruby red state in the country. And uh, in terms of states that have lots of electoral votes, you know, Texas is is a big part of the show for Republicans. And uh, they need to do better than 52 percent, I think, to feel confident going forward. Yeah, I mean, your um, your roundhead partner in crime, uh, Charlie Cook, uh, which is ironic, given that you have the rounder head of the two of you. Um, but uh, this is probably as round as mine. It's just not as visibly. Round. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he said on the editor's podcast, I think about a week ago, that he thinks in the coming years, Florida will be the more prototypical Republican state than Texas will be. Yeah. And, and I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think he's right. You know, now I think it's basically maybe a hybrid, maybe maybe the middle ground between Ohio and Florida is what a Republican state looks like. Um, because I just don't think you can say that Florida, Florida may, be, may, may already be the most important Republican state, you know, particularly if you take Texas out of consideration. But it can't be the t- most typical Republican state because no state <laughs> is like Florida, right? I mean, Florida is no, not is is this very strange place. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I think the trouble for the Republicans is the most typically and strongly Republican states just don't tend to have a lot of people. In them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, in sixteen, Trump got almost seventy percent of the vote in Wyoming. He got two thirds of the vote in Oklahoma, and uh, Oklahoma is not a tiny state, but it's not a not a not a great big state like California, New York, or Texas. So, you know, having sweeping states that have a couple of electoral votes and being right on the edge of the big states and having, of course, several of the largest states just outside of your category, um, more or less indefinitely. I mean, I don't expect Republicans to become competitive in California or New York presidential races anytime soon. Uh, Yeah, Florida, they're going to have to pay a lot of attention to. And I think that's a dangerous place, too, because Florida is such a weird and unpredictable place. And registration-wise, you know, it's pretty close to being a 50-50 state. Yeah. Democrats don't seem to be able to win a statewide office there, with the, the one exception uh, in recent years. But um, but it's not like it's a runaway uh, Republican um, dominance. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so one of the things that I, mean, I wrote about in the Mitvok G-File, uh, is this thing that I know has been burbling around for a good long while. Orrin Cass has done some work on all this, but the post-election conventional wisdom among a bunch of Republican politicians, most notably Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, um, and a bunch of, of, Putative, you know, political philosophers on Twitter is that uh, the election results results show unequivocally 
that the Republican Party is now now needs to be and basically is. This is what Conrad Black wrote for NR, and since we're no longer colleague, I'm no longer a colleague of Conrad Black's. I can be a little more blunt about things in a very bad column, which is to say a pretty typical column um, uh, that they've that Trump has transformed the Republican Party into a multi-ethnic workers party. Yeah, and that that's the direction it has to go. Um, and I mean, we can, I'm happy to talk about the, the data that allegedly proves this because I can't find much of it. Mm -hmm. It's very scattershot. Um, but let's assume it's true. Um, can you give me a, and and I guess, I guess this ties into, um, one of the lead essays in your new book about, you know, your famous back and forth with our friend, Michael Brendan Doherty about Garbit, which you can explain and the future of sort of the, the down the downscale economic voter. Um, so what do you make of this talk about the GOP coming either becoming or being a workers party? And what does a workers party actually mean to you? Yeah, I think it's a shame that, uh, you know, democratic farmer labor party is already taken, you know, as a, <laughs> yeah, good spot for them. Uh, cause farmers and big part of their coalition and, and, and labor increasingly some of it, um, yeah, I, I wrote a column about this too for the Washington Post, and um, I think there's something to it. I think that uh, the lesson a lot of Republicans are going to take away from 2020 is that Trumpism works as an electoral coalition. Um, Trump is a uniquely bad candidate in a lot of ways um, because he's dumb and lazy, which is makes it difficult to be president. And but also campaigning in a terrible epidemic and the economic contraction that went along with that and all sorts of other things and just kind of a poisonous personality. I think the question for the Republicans moving forward is, can we have a version of Trumpism uh, under someone who isn't Donald Trump, someone who's a halfway intelligent and disciplined political operator? And I think that is um, something that's going to be very attractive to them for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the entire conversation um on the popular right you know talk radio fox news that kind of stuff a few of the less respectable websites is basically versions of conspiracy theory you know it's QAnon in the most extreme form but it's um also you know it's the elites and the globalists behind the scene and the republican establishment stabbing us in the back and that kind of conspiratorial us and them version of politics goes together pretty naturally with populism uh, you see it on the populist left as well. It's essentially, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2016 ran a very similar campaign to Donald Trump's. Uh, Sanders doesn't like to hear that, but um, they gave a lot of similar speeches on trade and immigration. Um, I know I was there listening to them. And uh, so for the Republican Party to um, turn around and try to maneuver its way back to you know more traditionally conservative uh, view of things in a more traditionally conservative constituency. I think it would be politically very difficult for them. They don't see much benefit in even trying, I think, uh, because they, they think, and not without some reason, that even if their position diminishes among college-educated whites, and particularly whites with graduate degrees and living in suburbs and working in professional jobs, uh, if they can get 20 25% of the African-American vote and 40% of the Hispanic vote, then they've got a winning coalition. And I think that 2020 suggested they're on their way maybe to getting there with that. So demagoguery works. Demagoguery works really pretty well. Uh, but I don't think it produces good policy. 
Um, but the incentives aren't really on the side of good policy. They're on the side of cheap populism. And so that's why we're seeing so much cheap populism in, in both parties right now. And, you know, a lot of the things that um, conservatives traditionally have believed in aren't things that have a natural constituency. Uh, you know, there's no one who gets up in the morning, not many people, separate Ramesh, you know, who get up in the morning and say, I really care about well-ordered liberty and the rule of law. You know, this is, I mean, you notice it when it's not there, uh, you notice it when it's missing and you wish you had it back. And often people who lose it don't understand how they lost it. Uh, things like free trade really matter a lot to, you know, soybean farmers in South Dakota, uh, because they have a very export oriented business. Um, it matters a lot to, uh, American manufacturers who are very dependent upon imports for all sorts of inputs, you know, steel, aluminum, machine parts, uh, all that kind of stuff. But um, in terms of big popular passions, these are just not things that people um, get excited about. There's not 200 million Americans out there who really, really care about free trade. There's, you know, 20 million Americans, maybe, uh, if that many. So it's, um, it's going to be very tempting for them, I think. And uh, I don't think they have, most of them anyway, the, the moral or intellectual development to resist that temptation. And they don't have the political talent to resist that temptation while maintaining political power. It's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to push back on this a little bit because I, I, I really do see it a little differently. Um, you talk about the political talent to resist that. Um, I don't think Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Mike Pence, Marco Rubio have the political talent to pull off Trumpism. Hmm. Right. Um, uh, Tucker does. And we could be seeing Tucker in the primaries. I mean, I, 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 I'm not predicting it. If you gave me odds, I might bet on it. But um, but this I mean, first of all, there's a faulty premise. There's a stolen base going on here, which is the idea. If you read the, like the Wall Street Journal or the Axios stuff for the last couple of days about Tom Cotton and, and, and Rubio and these guys. Um, they seem to think that Trump's appeal to the new voters he brought in, as, and also just the people who show up at MAGA rallies, was primarily policy-driven. No, it's enemies-driven. Yeah, right. It's and it's 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 kayfabe and boob bait and um and you know Huey Long stuff. Meanwhile, the stuff that he actually bragged about, most of it was stuff that. Paul Ryan, the Federalist Society, Mitch McConnell, National Review, you know, all the pre-Trump, you know, uh, placeholders for, uh, you know, or totems for for pre-Trump conservatism or the dead consensus or whatever you want to call it, whether it's pro-life, immigration restriction, corporate tax cuts, um, uh, you know, everything basically except trade, as far as I can tell, you know, uh, you know, conservative judges. Um, these were all things that we didn't need Trump to tell us conservatives were for because conservatives were for it before Trump came along. Yeah. What, what Trump sold was the show. Yeah. And Tom Cotton, bless his heart, or Mike Pence, like they couldn't even pull off being Trump's rodeo clown. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like, like, like yeah. have you ever, I, mean, I mean, like Tom Cotton, I have a lot of respect for. He's a smart guy. He's mm -hmm. accomplished a lot of great things, but he is not. A larger than life personality. I mean, he, he's got, you know, I mean, 
he's got lifeless eyes. He, like he's got a doll's eyes. You know, I mean, I just don't see how well, those guys with lifeless doll's eyes. You know, Rick Scott's never lost an election. That's true. Can you imagine him holding a MAGA rally though? Yeah, um, I can see him doing that as opposed to doing uh, the next best thing, which is you know being sort of a traditional conservative. Um, so I've, I've spent a little time with him and interviewed him and stuff. He's, um, in a way he's the, he's the guy Donald Trump played on television, you know, an actual successful businessman and, mm -hmm. um, intelligent manager, that sort of stuff. He is, um, I think the line I use, which is not original to me is he's either the, the worst good politician in America or the best bad politician in America, because he had a really good record in office. Yeah. We always barely won reelection. He's never been very popular. He's he not worked very hard. Popular. What's that? He worked really hard. Worked really hard. Did really good work. Yeah. Um, doesn't have that kind of, you know, celebrity power, I think. But um, one thing about the, the, the Trump phenomenon is that it's not just the Trump phenomenon. You know, we've got this whole uh, right wing broadcast circus now of which he was a, a ringleader and the star. But that stuff doesn't go away with Trump. You're still going to have Fox News doing its version of demagoguery. You're still going to have talk radio doing its version of demagoguery. And I think it's a question of, you know, someone who can get out in front of the parade. Now, I don't think it's Rick Scott because I don't think he's probably got the charisma to be elected president. I think the same thing is probably true of Tom Cotton. Rubio, maybe. Uh, Rubio can be pretty charming. I've, I've watched him work some rooms and he's, he's awfully good at it. But charming within normal parameters, right? I mean, I, I agree. Rubio can be charming. He's a good politician in that sense. But I just, he's not. Anyway, like I said, we we can we, we can we can do the horse race horse flesh thing about their political talent if we want. But my 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 larger point is is that I don't know what it means. Like so, policy wise, you have Marco Rubio saying um, there are many people. He gave this quote to Axios, which infuriated me. Um, market fundamentalists about market fundamental. You know, these people yeah. in the Republican Party who are market fundamentalists. They control the think tanks and yada yada yada. I mean, it was basically sub line of analysis. And um, I think that what I'd say about that is that uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm just right. well, this is in my head. Let me get it out. The policy stuff is always subordinate to the enemies list. It's the enemies list that drives things. And if there aren't people you want to put on the enemies list, you have to make somebody up to put on the enemies list because that is how their model of politics currently works. Um, it's, um, again, it's, it's sort of steeped in this conspiratorial uh, play-acting view of the world. I think Rubio certainly is, is guilty of that stuff. And Rubio is um, also silly on this front because he is the kind of cartoon version of uh, what us market fundamentalists mean when we're talking about cronyism, corporate welfare, and stuff like that, where there's just absolute bs about sugar subsidies yeah. and sugar protectionism being a matter of national security i mean come on so my thing about that kind of thing i remember you know i grew up in this rent stabilized not rent controlled which is a distinction that means a great deal to a tiny number of people yeah but i grew up in this rent stabilized apartment in new york city and i always remember when they did the big rent control reform stuff my dad was very worried because there's no way we could afford the apartment we were in under market conditions. And, mm -hmm. and he was super relieved because he, he said, okay, I've looked at it and it turns out that if you have a good deal, you're pretty screwed. But if you have a great deal, you're okay. <laughs> and, and when I listen to people like Rubio, when they talk about how, you know, we have to get rid of crony capitalism and stuff, 
except for my client industries, which have an incredibly great deal, they have to be exempt, right? I mean, it's this yeah. sort of like the people who take a little subsidies, we have to reform that because we're not socialists. But the people who take massive subsidies, they have to be protected. You know, um, it's an inver- it's the pyramids upside down and their reasoning. But. Yeah, and, you know, the export import bank and all that kind of stuff is and this is what this stuff actually looks like in practice. And one of the arguments I'm really, well, maybe I'm not entirely surprised the Democrats didn't make this, but the real argument against Trump that I think would have been even more effective in 2020 is that he was a failure by his own metrics. Mm-hmm. There's no wall. Uh, the trade deficit with China is bigger than it was when he came into office. Um, there are more. Debt's higher. What's that? The debt's much higher. Debt's much higher. Uh, there are more illegal immigrants from Central America in the country today than there were in 2016, although the number of Mexican illegal immigrants has uh, diminished somewhat. And um, now these aren't necessarily the right measures of everything. I don't think the trade deficit's actually a very useful right. metric of anything. But these are the the numbers he and, and, and standards he pulled for himself, and he just refused. He, he failed to do it. And one of the reasons he failed to do it, of course, is because he didn't really try to do it, you know. Um, when his party controlled both houses of Congress, they didn't even try to do anything on immigration. There just wasn't anything there. They did a Paul Ryan typical Republican tax bill. Um, and then they named a bunch of judges that Ted Cruz would have picked or, you know, anyone else would have picked as well. So um, the idea that Trump represents a kind of radical break in policy from what went before, I think, is exaggerated, except for the things that he really cares about, which are trade and immigration. Um, the irony there is if you look at the places where the Trump administration was relatively successful, it was conventional country club Republican stuff, the tax bill, some deregulation, things like that, that Trump doesn't care about and isn't involved in. Um, the stuff that he gets a personal hand in is, you know, trade and immigration, which he made worse in the case of trade and didn't really do anything in the case of, uh, immigration. And, uh, he was so easily swayed by crackpots around him, you know, people like Peter Navarro and and folks like that. Although on that front, you know, for all of the, uh, you know, Trump is saying that National Review and that kind of conservatism is irrelevant. Sure, a lot of people from the National Review masthead working in the Trump administration. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Larry Kudlow and Kevin Hassett, and I guess Betsy DeVos was never on our board, but her husband was. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people from that orbit ended up being some of the important policy players in that uh, administration. Um, but I mean, let's. I, I was not asked to serve in any role, John, in case you're wondering. Well, you know, I've revealed this already, but uh, a emissary from one of the cabinet secretaries during the transition reached out to me to be a communications director. Department of Pants. And I don't, I don't want to get this these people in trouble because they're nice people and, and all the rest. But, uh, I've kept that in my back pocket waiting for like, if Trump ever decided to attack me on Twitter again, I was like, why, why'd your administration offer me a job? But I've declined to do that. Um, uh, and I told them this is a very bad idea for so many reasons that it will waste. It's a waste of time to even make the list. But, um, I'd pay, I'd pay good money to watch you doing White House press briefings. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> um, lots of eye rolling and blinking of torture. Um, so, no, but... Um, um, Not to go off on a tangent, by the way, but by the way, my favorite White House you know, press spokesman ever 
in, at least in, in the time I've been watching politics, was Dee Dee Myers, uh, just because I liked the way she would stand up there and have this look on her face like, he did what? They <laughs> 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 would ask her questions. She was clearly just out of the loop and didn't know what was going on and was embarrassed. And uh, that was just fun to watch. That was great. Yeah, no, I mean, if if you're not in... If you're not in the information loop with the with the Oval Office and you you have that job, it is um, one opportunity after another to humiliate yourself or be humiliated, unless you are shameless, which many of the current press secretaries have, and they could you know, you get the sense that Kaylee McEnany, who's violating the Hatch Act right now, by the way, by being uh, having two jobs, um, if Trump gave her a third job to go clean up the White House kitty litter box. She'd happily do that. And that is why I want to talk to you about the Kitty Poop Club. Yeah, but, you know, uh, being told to clean out the litter boxes isn't the punishment it once used to be, thanks to the Kitty Poop Club. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of grief from people having to say the words Kitty Poop Club, but I say it proudly. Um, in the grand tradition of Benjamin Franklin's essay, when you're going to fart, fart proudly, I say Kitty Poop Club proudly. And not just because it's a funny phrase, but because they're a, it's actually a really great product, which we've used and we like. Um, the basic idea is kind of brilliant. It's a disposable litter box. Kitty Poo Club is an all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Well, convenient for you if you have a cat or a, maybe a ferret or other creatures that use litter boxes. But you get that point. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, no changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and what type of litter they prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk guarantee. And you can easily customize or cancel your order order anytime. And so right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you a 20% off first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com. That's K-I-T-T-Y-P-O-O-C-L-U-B.com and entering promo code DINGO. Don't tell the cats that because they'll run away, but it's promo code DINGO at kittypooclub.com dot com promo code dingo to get 20% off when you set up auto ship that's kittypooclub.com and don't forget to enter promo code dingo at checkout i no but so seriously getting I, let's I stipulated that 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 demonization and negative partisanship and enemies lists um are more important to the business model and or the political strategy of a lot of Republicans and right-wing media and all that. I agree with that. Um, but there are serious people who actually believe that the GOP needs to be a worker's party. Yeah. Right? And part of my, and, and, and this is my main critique or critic or concern about people like Orrin Cass. So I think I have my disagreements with him. I think he does a lot of straw man stuff about describing Washington as run by libertarians and all that kind of stuff. But I think he's a serious guy. And he's a decent guy. And um, and I remember talking to him about this on, on the podcast once, you know, and as you know, Hayek's problem with planning wasn't that left-wingers were bad at planning. 
right? His problem with planning was that planning from centralized planning at a great distance doesn't work yeah. regardless of what your intentions are or your whether you're doing it for post-liberal Catholic solidarity or whether you're doing it for global cosmopolitanism, you still have the knowledge problem, right? Yeah. And I am still trying to figure out, you know, the, the only people I know who have serious pro-worker ideas that I can live with are the ones from the pre-Trump consensus. People like Yuval and Ramesh and Michael Strain and Jimmy Pethokoukas and these guys. And some of their stuff makes me a little nervous about the social engineering aspect of it, but it's still within the realm of free market, you know, limited government stuff. What, what to you is a actual pro-worker policy either under the old regime or the new that actually makes sense? Uh, that's a difficult question because a lot of this stuff is far removed from labor policy. You know, some of it has to do with the way the education system works. Some of it has to do with um, not understanding the way in which the integration of markets and supply chains actually helps American manufacturers encouraging those things. Uh, some of it has to do with um, the fact that we have to spend 1% of GDP every year just on tax compliance because our code is so complex. And um, so when you tell people we want to simplify the tax code, they say, well, how does that help workers? And the argument you have to give them is, well, you know, it leads to better investment and long-term growth. And no one ever buys that. It's, I want a $15 minimum wage, right. or I want my steel mill to be protected from Chinese competition or the nefarious Canadians who are always really the problem out there. And um, I think that um, I don't want to attribute bad faith to Oren Cass or Sir Abamari or any of these guys, but I think a lot of their thinking is actually driven by being too focused on Washington and being too deep dipped in that world. Mm -hmm. And it's more about, well, what would annoy and bother the libertarians and uh, give them an intellectual defeat or policy defeat than how will this actually help people in the long term in, in, in this country? So I think that um, there's an argument to be made for uh, immigration, uh, certain kinds of immigration control, I think. Uh, for very low-wage workers, particularly low-wage workers who are themselves immigrants, who are the ones mm -hmm. whose uh, wages tend to be undercut by new low-wage immigrants. Um, I take a pretty snotty attitude toward that, I guess, and that I don't think America has any great shortage of poor people. I don't see any need to uh, import a lot of them. Uh, we seem to have plenty of poor people to go around uh, in the country as it starts. And uh, so there's you know, a few things I think that maybe there's some, some room for agreement on. Um, you know, my kind of preferred immigration policy is um, more or less open doors for people who make $200,000 a year or more right? and uh, more or less closed doors for, uh, for the others. I think that's a, a kind of reasonable compromise that might produce some of the things that we'd like to see produced. But, um, you know, the easiest way to do wage subsidies is to subsidize wages. Uh, rather than try to monkey around with the economy and have, you know, tariffs and uh, trade impediments and all sorts of stuff in order to goose various kinds of domestic industries in the hope that that's going to result in higher wages rather than higher profits um, for the protected uh, capital owners, you can just subsidize wages. We can say, well, we like people to work for a living. And if you're out there working for a living and you only make $24,000 a year, but you've got two kids. We will just do X, Y, and Z. We will add 10% or 15% or 20%. And we do some of that through the EITC, right? I mean, the yeah. EITC is good. I yeah, mean, I think I, negative income tax is a probably a pretty good anti-poverty program. 
Um, but mainly, and this is something I get into a lot in the book, that if you look at these you know, communities where there is really a great deal of dysfunction, economic and social, um, the problem isn't so much low wages. Um, it's that people don't work. It's, it's, you know, relatively high levels of unemployment in places like Eastern Kentucky and the South Bronx and other places in the country that have uh, high degrees of persistent poverty and high degrees of, uh, of the dysfunction that goes along with that, which I think is another thing that we often don't talk about in, uh, in the context of what you were asking about earlier, which is there's a whole world of difference in the kind of policies that help a worker making $75,000 a year to become a worker who makes $90,000 a year and the policies that help someone making $8,000 a year to become someone who makes $35,000 a year. Yeah. Um, a lot of the um, industrial and economic protectionism we're, we're, we're looking at is oriented toward workers who are already in the upper middle class. Uh, you know, people who are making, you know, ninety, ninety five $100,000 a year are the or households making that certainly are the um are the prime beneficiaries of that and it doesn't do anything at all for people who aren't working or who are working in you know working as hotel clerks making four hundred dollars a week uh doing overnight shifts and that sort of thing um yes yeah, so i re i recently wrote you know one of my obsessions i gotta say you probably are the guy who at least in its current incarnation lit the fuse on it um i one of my current obsessions is republicans abandoning cities yes. you know which is i think we talked about it last time you were on here and um you wrote that great piece it's no longer true but at the time the 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 biggest city that republicans had control of was i think fort worth um when you well, wrote the piece a couple it, years ago love Lubbock? It, my hometown yeah it's the largest reliably Republican city in Texas. Oh, in Texas. Okay. Went for okay. Beto over, uh, over, uh, over Ted Cruz. Um, I think the biggest Republicans do well in city elections in a couple of big cities. San Diego uh, is the biggest right now. I mean, San I Diego, Miami. Yeah. Uh, Miami elects Republican mayors, things like that. Indianapolis. But um, those are real outliers. And uh, there aren't many after that. But. It seems to me if you wanted our actual pro worker program, the place with the lowest hanging fruit are big metro areas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a point that you've all often likes to make. I mean, you know this thing about you know uh, what is it? Um, Stadt Luft macht du frei. Uh, city air makes you free, right? And uh, um, this you're just determined to speak German today. <laughs> yeah, I kind of am. Yeah, that's as far as the cities are normally the place that attract poor people. Yeah, because that's where there's work and poor people and city. The, the urbanization of Africa and Asia is the greatest driver of anti-poverty trends of the last 10,000 years. Yeah. And um, uh, and part of the problem we've got in American cities now is that the downside of, of hand, getting a handle on crime is that rich people all want to live and gentrify in the inner cities. And so the poor people are being kicked out to the suburbs and they, and they can't afford to live in cities anymore, because, in, or at least in the, where the, the, the job creation is, because things like zoning, rent control, all of the taxes uh, are a barrier to entry. And 
the idea that you couldn't have some culturally liberal, you know, more liberal than either of us on a lot of cultural issues, Republicans competing to win over the, the petty bourgeois in, in major metro areas just strikes me as bizarre, particularly since going, at, going into the future, you can't win major elections without carving out more of that vote anyway. Yeah, I've always thought that's, that's how Republicans come back in California. Right. Um, you know, I've got lefty friends in San Francisco who sound like Milton Friedman if you start asking them about housing. And, um, you know, they're rich le- lefties, so they're fine to have a $3 million house, but they don't understand why their house is worth $3 million. Right. And, uh, and they do understand. They understand that there are artificial barriers to, barriers to market entry and that when you've got a lot of people who want to live in a place because desirable places are desirable, um, that you have to have supply keep up with demand. Uh, they understand this. You can make a pretty straightforward supply and demand argument about this to people in places like the Bay Area, in places like New York City or um, Boston or other places that are uh, you know, growing cities like in, um, in Arizona, Nevada and Texas. Um, I think that's a pretty easy case to make in a lot of ways. But I think you're, you hit upon something there, which is that those sort of um, non-culturally poisonous advocates don't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who, who, who are you going to send to uh, Los Angeles to say, hey, you know, I, I don't actually think of Los Angeles as the enemy the way the rest of my party does. And I don't think California should be uh, sawed off and uh, pushed out into the Pacific, uh, that we should uh, build a wall around New York City to uh, keep them in. And all the, the rest of the way Republicans talk about this stuff. So I think that you know, Republicans are going to have to, at some point, understand that there's a lot of good stuff in the country that's associated with people who are not culturally like us, who mm-hmm. are not conservative. So you know, this is a, a spiel I have, but um, I think it's, it's, it's worth thinking about is the people who call themselves nationalists uh, hate everything in the United States that's successful. Like <laughs> Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the cities, California, New York, technology, Hollywood, Hollywood um, you know, the universities. Um, all the best stuff in the country, the stuff that, you know, is really the envy of the world, um, they think is just awful. And, uh, so what do you like? Well, we like hog farmers in Nebraska. Well, I love <laughs> hog farmers in Nebraska. Some of my best friends are hog farmers in Nebraska, but, um, that's not a winning coalition. And it's also not one that I think that's going to bring in, you know, young people because people have aspirations and a lot of those aspirations live in the cities and they live in the universities and they live in industries and occupations that right-wingers now kind of sneer at as being un-American or, you know, effete or, or whatnot. And I think there, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, who are 18 years old and getting out of high school and they want to go to Stanford and work at Google and make a lot of money and have a fun life in California. And we tell them, well, that sucks and you're stupid for wanting that. You should want to be a farmer and mule shoe. Or we tell them you can be a real conservative and a real Republican and be a hog farmer. Or you can go work at Google and they'll say, okay, I'll go work at Google and I won't be a conservative and I won't be a Republican. I mean, it's like, it's a pretty easy trade-off if you're 18 and, you know, there are all sorts of psychological, there's all sorts of time horizon issues that you have when you're 18 that you don't appreciate, you know, the importance of tradition and and family and all of these things. I I suspect that you had some time horizon uh, mistakes. Uh, in your youth, I know mm-hmm. I had I made some in mine, um, and so you tell people, well, you can't be a good Republican unless you 
are willing to sort of buy into this, you know, social solidarity, marry young, you know, all these things, all these things, which I think are very good, but you can't whip people into taking these positions when they have ambitions and desires and, you know, and, and want to see the world kind of thing. And it's just, so it, it's such, I mean, you it, it, explain it to me how I've had this, I've mentioned this a million times on here that I think that the Republican party and the democratic party, they're not going to die because the way the two party system is set up, it's almost impossible for that to happen. But you could see the coalitions radically change over the next five years. And I think we've been seeing the coalitions that make up these parties. But it's becoming a very difficult thing to be uh, conservative about the institutions that keep America innovative and dynamic in a party that increasingly sees innovation and dynamism as the enemy. Yeah. Um, what is your best case scenario about, like, where did the cla- where where are the classical liberals broadly defined in which party in five or ten years? Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I'm not sure that I've got a really good answer to. Um, but before I get to that, one thing that um, I think maybe is is worth noting is that at some point people are going to see the fraudulence of this you know conservative uh, culture war stuff because all this valorization of you know the real America, which is farmers and small towns is done by, you know, people like Laura Ingram, who, as far as I can tell in her adult life, has lived in New York City and Washington and worked for a white shoe law firm and a multimedia, a multinational media conglomerate. Right. <laughs> Not a lot of corn farming going on. Sean Hannity uh, only flies private. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. I, I'm sure he picked up his famous taste for country music in the sawdust-covered honky-tonks of Long Island. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so this stuff is funny. And I like Tucker Carlson. I consider mm-hmm. Tucker a friend. Tucker's a good guy and he's a good writer. I wish he'd just written for a living instead of becoming the sort of television figure he is. But, you know, Tucker's never been downwind of poverty. Uh, you know, his middle name is Swanson because of the uh, TV dinner people. You know, I think uh, if his parents weren't billionaires, they must have been close to it. And uh, I think it's a little more. I mean, I've known Tucker for a long time. It's a little more complicated story. All right. But I think the point is generally right. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and there's an element of play acting, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and I, this is something I have a sort of personal resentment about, but, um, you know, these people who don't really know anything about these communities and what life is like in them appoint themselves to be tribunes of the plebs and, uh, say, well, we're going to be the people who look out for your interests and we're also going to tell you what your aspirations ought to be. And, um, I have an answer to that that probably shouldn't be said on a, on a polite <laughs> podcast, but it's, you know, seven letters that begin with F and end in U. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, so let's, I mean, I can't remember if it's the first essay or the second essay, but, you know, one of the ones that sort of, back when I was at NR, launched a lot of internal debate, external debate, a lot of people grabbing their popcorn, was your friendly collegial at the very least mm-hmm. disagreement with Michael Brennan Doherty, um, who's also a friend of, um, of, about the down, you know, the, 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 the blue collar worker or wannabe blue collar worker in, in Garbit, was it New York? Garbit, New York. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, why don't you sort of explain what the argument was about and, and, you know, give people, let's give people some, extra clue about why they really should buy your book, which they should, which is yeah. on the front cover. The front blurb is 
uh, from Paul Krugman, who just simply says, you're truly reprehensible. So there's that. Yes, so. that's, that's the second time that Krugman blurb has appeared on the cover. Of, uh, <laughs> so he did me a great favor with that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Professor Krugman. Um, yeah, so with apologies to the good people of Garbutt, New York, I should point out that it was Michael and not me who chose Garbutt as the uh, epitome of a sort of downscale struggling place, which it's not, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Garbutt actually has slightly above average income. It's not a, not a terrible place. But um, so Michael wrote this thing about, you know, Republicans and conservatives and sort of policies they offer to kind of downscale people who live in a place like Garbutt or a place that actually is sort of downscale versus, you know, I think Jeffrey it was in, uh, Jeffrey in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Jeffrey in uh, somewhere in Fairfield County. And uh, who's a, you know, coke sniffing uh, hedge fund guy or something <laughs> like that, um, as opposed to his, you know, meth smoking or opiate addicted uh, counterpart in, in, in Garbutt. And so I got kind of curious about that. And I was like, well, what is, you know, Garbutt's story? And it's a place where there was a gypsum mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, gypsum used to be used in fertilizer. And then the gypsum industry kind of played out. And then it had a little bit of a comeback when gypsum started to be used in drywall. And then um, it just wasn't enough to sustain the place. And there's this very sad essay about Garbutt, about how, um, you know, after the decline of the gypsum industry, it's like its schools shrank and they only had a couple of schools left. And there had been a couple of nice hotels in town and those were gone. And the churches had kind of collapsed and a lot of the social capital had been uh, dispersed. And this was written in 1902. You know, so <laughs> at some point you have to say, um, well, the reason for this place existing was gypsum mining. And right. now there's not any gypsum mining anymore. So maybe you just move on because uh, you can't create synthetic economic vitality in a place like that. And this was something I got into a lot in my writing about Eastern Kentucky where I was speaking to people down there and they said, you know, the problem is that there's no jobs down here because there are no employers and uh, there's no employers because there's no workers. You know, if Google or Tesla moved a facility into, uh, you know, the, the, the poor mountainous parts of, of Eastern Kentucky, they'd have to import all the workers too. Right. Uh, Cause there aren't people there who could do those jobs. Um, so there aren't, you know, there's a, it's a kind of uh, downward spiral, a, a vicious circle. And, um, this is not something that I think is really very easily solvable by any kind of public policy and, uh, cities come and go, communities come and go, uh, some places make it, some places don't. And I think that's okay. Um, I think a lot of people like Michael have a very sentimental attitude toward these things. And, um, I think Michael's particularly guilty of that in some ways because uh, I give him a hard time often because he describes himself you know, as being sort of a nationalist. So I'm like, which country again? I forget. <laughs> I know. He does have that problem. Yeah. He seemed to spend a lot of time in Ireland. Um, and uh, so some of this stuff, I think, is sentimentality. Some of it, I think, is people appointing themselves champions for individuals and communities they don't actually understand very well. Um, Part of it's just wishful thinking that if we only had the right policies, then these places would be uh, different from the way they are. The thing I really discovered about Eastern Kentucky um, is that nothing happened. You know, there wasn't some catastrophe. There wasn't some war, plague, and there wasn't even, you know, a business that went away uh, because the places I was writing about um, weren't coal mining places. There were places that had been just kind of, you know, agricultural and and sort of small Mm -hmm. towns that didn't have any particular 
commercial or industrial basis. And uh, they lost population because there were better opportunities elsewhere. And it became a kind of uh, uh, adverse selection problem where the people with uh, skills or drive or uh, talent or ability left and the people who were left behind were the people who were left behind and typically people who were uh, suffering from other kinds of problems, um, a lot of addiction, a lot of uh, unemployment, those sorts of things. And it became kind of, um, I think I described it as an economic salt and sea where, you know, it gets the smaller, it gets the more concentrated the poisons right. are. And I think that is really the problem we're dealing with there. And I think that the answer there is the same as it is with the salt and sea, which is dispersal and dilution. And that's the, really the best you can do, which is why I'm not running for office, John. Yeah, I, 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 it's why I'm not your running mate. Um, no, I mean, it, so it, I just did this panel for this event that we did at the dispatch about institutions. And um, I'm kind of obsessed with institutions these days. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and part of it is just uh, infection from Yuval. But, you know, it occurs to me, it occurred to me, you know, the other day when I was writing my introductory remarks for this panel I was doing, that for most of human history, basically all conservatism was, was the conservation of institutions. Yes. I mean, that's all. I mean, like, there's this line from, I can't remember who it is, who's saying how in Europe prior to the Reformation, it's, it's ridiculous to talk about conservatism and politics because that's all politics were. Yes, you know, <laughs> and um, you know, protecting the, the the authority of throne and altar, protecting the role of these various institutions, various nobles holding on to their power, um, and the weird thing, the sort of the we're not Watusi's thing in the stripe sense that makes America awesome is that uh, partly because of our British and Dutch inheritance, ideological and otherwise. Um, we actually care about protecting institutions that protect innovation and dynamism. Yeah. Which is weird, right? Historically, it's very weird. And, um, and so like with, with, you know, one of the points that Robert Nismet made about institutions, which is sort of central to Yuval's point about it as well, is that no one creates institutions just so people can get together and, talk to each other or have a sense of belonging. You don't create something simply for the sense of belonging, right? You don't, you create a church because you actually believe in this theology and this notions of transcendence. You create a business to sell stuff and it becomes an institution, right? And the, the, you had this riot of institution building at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century as part of the transition from agrarian to industrial economy. Um, and a lot of these towns, they're basically, I mean, Garbit or the Garbit that Michael describes or the Eastern Kentucky that you describe, these, these are institutions writ large that have lost for whatever reason, the reason why they were created. Yes. And you, and, and if you lose the reason why you're created, entropy kicks in. And it used to be that conservatives were very comfortable talking about that kind of thing. Creative destruction, dynamism, America on the go. and now, if you talk about that kind of thing, you're, you know, accused of being one of the libertarians that ran Washington for the last 30 years. I mean, I, it's a very sudden change on the right. Yeah. Um, I think there's kind of a, a local version of the mandate of heaven, you know, <laughs> and um, and uh, people not wanting to admit that it has been forfeited 
for uh, whatever reason, and that these places no longer have uh, purpose. I think that um, one of the problems of being in a very rich society like ours is that it's it's very comfortable, and um, that creates a real partisan base for inertia. Um, when you are, you know, it's you look at the ancient empires, you know, from the from the Romans to the Brits, they exhausted a, a, and expended a tremendous amount of capital and innovation and uh, military resources trying to open up the trade routes. And we're trying to close them off. You know, um, they were close enough to desperation that they understood where things came from and why they needed uh, lots of different places to buy grain and lots of different places to get this or that commodity. and. Um, we are in a very different situation where we're just kind of happy where things are right now. We just don't want things to change too much. And that is, um, and again, this is something that you've always written about a lot too, and, and I have as well. I think a um, largely a legacy of the myth of post-war America, this idea that in the 1950s, any guy could go down to a factory and get a job and punch the clock and make the kind of living where he could support a family with a nice home and dignity and uh, the occasional vacation and all that sort of stuff. If you look at actual material standards of living, 1950s, 1960s, even in the 1980s, uh, people were radically poor by our current standards. And um, they were, um, you know, my, my father, like a lot of people who grew up in the generation, has this you know, expression that we, you know, we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor, so it was all right. Yeah. Because everyone around us was barefoot too. And... Um, you can have a 1957 standard of living very cheaply in most mm-hmm. of this country. Um, you, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to a good realtor in Lubbock County. And they will hook <laughs> you up with a house that was built in 1940 and doesn't have any air conditioning. And, uh, and you can have that 1957 standard of living all you like. And it won't cost very much at all. Yeah, hell, you hardly even have to work to do it. Uh, but the truth is people don't want that. They want the fruit of the 21st century without doing the work of harvesting that fruit and without the disruption and anxiety and changes that go along with the dynamism you were talking about. So it's my, my take on American political culture is essentially that our problem is immaturity, mm-hmm. that we um, have got to a point where we just simply refuse to admit the facts of the case and deal in a forthright way with the situation we're in um, and with the problems we have, which require unpleasant decisions about the allocation of scarce resources. And uh, they require us to let communities decline when there's no reason for them to be there. And maybe to make it easier for them to decline. You know, one of the things that I've talked about um, as, a, as a potential policy idea is I think it would make a lot of sense to repackage a portion of unemployment benefits as relocation benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make them pretty generous. Because people do have a hard time sometimes. You know, I've lost my job and I've been offered a job that's essentially the same pay, but it's three states over and, you know, moving is expensive and I got to get a new place and put down a deposit and all that stuff. And I just simply can't do it. And I've been in that situation several times myself over the course. Of um, I think that one of the really good things we could do is simply make that easier for people to do and say, hey, look, if you are someone who's been unemployed for 90 days and you were moving to take a job and we're going to, you know, instead of parceling this stuff out every two weeks, we'll give you a lump sum payment to help you with your relocation costs. 
subject to, you know, the clawback and everything else, the money's misused or you voucherize it or do other things to make it more easy to implement as a responsible policy. But um, rather than saying, well, what can we do to keep people in these dying uh, communities with no economic basis? Well, how about we get them to some place that's not right. like that? And if we disincorporate a couple of small towns around the country, well, it's happened before. Yeah. So, th- I mean, I-, I ranted about this on the Dispatch podcast earlier this week. Um, this is one of my great gripes about the current Trumpism is now policy thing is, uh, you know, Michael Strain, he wrote this piece for National Affairs. He's my colleague at AEI, arguing essentially for the same thing. A, 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 you know, that the problem with our country isn't so much structural unemployment. It's that it's uh, the, the workers aren't where the jobs are and vice versa. And if we could just pay people one time lump sum, you know, uh, stipend, coupon, whatever you want to call it, to send them where the jobs are, you would help enormously. Also, if we could reform things like the welfare system, which make the cost of leaving one jurisdiction to go to another hugely expensive, right? We want, we should need more mobility, not less. Anyway, my point is, is that there are lots of people, Ramesh, Yuval, you know, um, uh, you know, Scott Winship. I mean, there are a bunch of people, these reformicon types were making these arguments. Our friend Ryan and Ross were making these kinds of arguments, Sam Republican stuff. And the keepers of uh, the faith at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, people like Mark Levin, they were the ones saying you cannot deviate from the, the, the holy book of Reaganism circa 1982. And this sounds too social engineering and too, you know, progressive. And if maybe people had listened to those people 15, 10, 10 15 years ago, the plight of the working class might have been sufficiently improved that someone like Donald Trump coming along, putting cider in their ear, um, wouldn't have would have been ignored the way he should have been ignored. And yeah. and then the same people who, who who urinated from a great height on all of these like reasonable reforms um, started hectoring the same kind of people for not getting on board the Trump train. And one of their key arguments from people like Bill Bennett and all these other people is, you don't understand, he's attracting the working class to the party. <laughs> it's like, well, we actually wanted to do something to help the working class. Mm. And you people said, no, you can't do that because it wasn't, it didn't look like top, lowering the top marginal tax rates, um, you know, a la Reagan. And and this is, I mean, I, there's a real sclerosis that, I mean, I, I would hope, I, you know, the, one of the upsides of Trump, I thought, was that he basically smashed everything. Yeah, and and that we can now build on the rubble, but it doesn't seem like that's what's actually happening. No, the rubble is radioactive, and you don't want to build on it. You know, I think that um, one of the things in our kind of political culture that's under underappreciated and, and not widely understood outside of the narrow little circle that people like you and and, and I belong to is the extent to which these uh, conservative thought leaders on television and radio are terrified of their audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, They are terrified that um, the smallest change in fashion will have them on the outside and they will lose their contracts and not be able to work. And I know a lot of these folks, I'm sure you do as well. And um, some of the more honest ones, you know, off, off camera and off mic will be pretty forthright about this stuff that they see their role, not as informing people and making arguments and leading them, 
but being a cheerleader for whatever it is that's popular right now. Right. And um, all the policy justifications for Trump and all the policy arguments for Trump were retrofitted to him. Uh, you know, Trump came onto the scene because he was a celebrity because he had a certain kind of style. And if Trump had had a different basket of policy preferences attached to him, it wouldn't have made much difference because the Trump thing was about Trump. Right. Um, now, that being said, the Trump thing being about Trump isn't just about Donald Trump as an individual. It's about that style, um, the sort of, you know, hectoring, sneering, uh, can we humiliate the other side? Uh, style. And that's what people really are looking for, I think. And that's the unfortunate thing in the way that our, our presidential politics has been transformed into this kind of weird form of idolatry is that um, if you understand the president to essentially be a national avatar and an embodiment of the, of the body politic, then one side has to be half insane at all times when its guy isn't in power. And it becomes an exercise in um, communicating various kinds of social dominance, uh, kind of ritual humiliation, that sort of thing. And uh, Trump was particularly apt at that because ritual humiliation is sort of a part of his personal life as well. Right. So he kind of was able to, um, well, it is. I mean, look how he treats people, um, you know, from wives to children to uh, business partners and, and all the rest of it. So he was a natural kind of candidate for that, that style. Um, but in many ways, you know, what Trump did was he simply ran the Ross Perot campaign inside the Republican Party instead of outside of the Republican Party. And I think that was um, a genuine, you know, marketing uh, insight and a, and a smart move. And I think that for the foreseeable future, we'll probably get more of this rather than less of this. You know, someone was saying that, you know, political parties never really learn until they lose three presidential elections in a row. Right. And, uh, you know, the, Repo the Democrats in 92 uh, with Clinton. I think are a pretty good example of that. And uh, Republicans haven't quite suffered enough pain yet. And in fact, the 2020 election was close enough that they can plausibly, and I think there's, again, a reasonable argument to be said, well, the problem isn't so much this style or this content as it is, you know, Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's a good point because one of the things Trump did was it made the much more restrained version of the same style seem normal. Yeah. Like, you know, so, because he goes so far out there accusing journalists of murder and all that kind of stuff, it makes, um, you know, some of the stuff that Ron Johnson, for bizarre reasons, has started doing seem like statecraft. You know, yeah. <laughs> when in fact, under normal normal times, what Ron Johnson is doing would be considered outrageous. But um, I, like, I like the point about the, the, the radioactive rubble um, it's a good metaphor, which I may run with, um, um, in part because it lends itself to Godzilla metaphors and I'm very partial to Godzilla metaphors. And, you know, one of the things you get from radioactive rubble is, uh, quite often acute hair loss. And that's why I want to talk about keeps. Okay. One of the things they want, one of the things that keeps, they want me to do is talk about my own experience with keeps. Unfortunately, um, I have, uh, rich wavy hair it's not quite hair like stalin um but it's sort of like if david cassidy from the partridge family went to seed uh that's sort of where my hair is right now so i can't talk about my personal testimonials with it i probably should have asked we probably should have sent some to kevin because he's got the whole sort of 
uh, James Bond villain shaved head thing going on, and he, he pulls it off pretty well. But I do know a few things about this because I used to freak out with fear about losing my hair. Um, and unlike Kevin and, and allegedly uh, Charlie Cook, I do not have a round head. I have a misshapen gourd of a head, and it's enormous. I have to special order hats to fit it because it is so large. Um, and so going bald would be a disaster for me, um, at least before I uh, somehow ensorcelled my wife into marrying me. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left to lose. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescriptions. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. We thank Keeps for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so you are, uh, you have at various times described yourself as an I'm going to butcher it, but I think the gist of it is right. And an anarcho-capitalist admirer of Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. Right. I feel that in your, in the, in the, 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 the prime years that you've now entered into, <laughs> you are going more Eisenhowerian than, than anarcho-capitalist, but maybe I'm just, I've missed a couple, a couple of things of late. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, I was reading your your piece in the in the book um, about Cal Exit and the weird guy who lives in Russia. Who's um, it, there's a reason why he lives in Russia to be the head of the uh, the secession movement of California. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, of, of all the people in our peer group, the one who I I consider to be actually more Nakian than me is you. <laughs> um, and I mean it as a compliment and. Um, uh, you know, and Nock had this famous or infamous line among a handful of people um, that he saw no reason why it should make a difference whether you lived in Belgium or the United States and he'd be just as happy living in Belgium as he would in the United States. And what he wasn't doing was doing this sort of Diogenes citizen of the world cosmopolitanism thing. He was just saying, since he's such an individual, he makes his way through life wherever he is and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. There's a real strain of that in you, part because mm-hmm. of where you've lived all this time. So I know what Charlie's argument would be. Um, I know what my argument would be. I certainly know what Rich's argument would be. I know what George Will's argument would be. What is your argument against various states of the union just seceding? I mean, is it the Eisenhowerian in you that says, well, there is something mystical and 
and, and wonderful about nationhood? Um, and if so, what is that? Well, I think the, maybe the best argument is simply the lack of a good argument on the other side. Uh, you know, the secessionist movements you see in California and Texas um, are just expressions of political adolescence. Um, they're not intellectually or politically serious in, in any way. Um, so I'm, I'm generally someone who's in favor of, of political self-determination for people who decide that they no longer want to belong to the polity in, in which they find themselves. Uh, I think there are better and worse ways to go about that in different kinds of uh, versions of regional and local autonomy. You know, Spain has been going through uh, this for years with the Basque. And uh, you, you, know, you see it in other places, well, you know, the Quebecois in Canada. Um, although they're also, I think, a version of not very serious version of that. Um, it's more cultural chauvinism for them, I think. Um, the United States has um, historically been a force for good and stability in the world and uh, liberalism properly uh, understood, you know, a word that is increasingly difficult to use in a polite society without people understanding what you, what you mean by it. So it's, I mean, that's been a problem for a long time. Conservatism yeah. is starting to be a real difficult word to use that's in polite true. society. Too. <laughs> that's true. And uh, so, yeah, my, my general uh, preferences for, for preserving those sorts of things, you know, the, uh, the anarchist uh, part of my, my thinking, I guess, in a sense is more descriptive than prescriptive. Um, I think, uh, anarcho-capitalism has a lot more to say about how the world is than how the world should be. Um, I mean, the most important things that are going on really kind of geopolitically and historically right now have to do with the migration of real power from nation states to non-state actors, whether they're, uh, technologies or multinational corporations or multinational popular movements, uh, those sorts of things. So I think that you just end up with a different kind of politics and maybe even a different kind of economics in a world in which um, states may claim a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, but don't really exercise anything like it. And where their ability to influence and shape things is limited by non-political or non-formal factors. So, you know, for instance... Attempts to impose censorship. Um, increasingly, it doesn't matter what the law says where you are. Um, there are ways around that stuff. Um, attempts to ban firearms in the United States are going to be just complete failures if they're even tried because we have things like 3D printing and people who know how to build guns in machine shops and things like that. So the technology has shifted the window of what government can actually do. Uh, what it can actually get done, and what it can expect to uh, do in a way that is robust and predictable and permanent. And I think that just leaves us in a very different kind of world. So, you know, my uh, I, I like that post-war Republican Party in a lot of ways because I think it was... Um, it was a bunch of grown-ups, for sure. It was a bunch of grown-ups. It still had, I think, the moral purpose that the Republican Party was started with. Um, mm -hmm. Um, that we saw through abolition and things like that, but it was a moral purpose that had um, been reformed to fit the period in time in which it found itself. And I think that the Republican Party then was 
much more conservative in the kind of Kirkian sense of not being hostage to an ideology, but trying to deal with the actual facts of the case on the ground as they saw them and to deal with the real problems that we institute governments to deal with in a way that was, as you said, grown up and um, intelligent and patriotic, not in this, you know, Lee Greenwood uh, flag waving sentimental sense but in the sense of having a real sense of duty and responsibility to the country as a whole. Uh, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, because there's so much talk of nationalism, is that there's really no sense of nation-mindedness on the right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's pure tribalism. It's, um, if we were really talking about nationalism, we're talking about things that are making the most of the country as a whole and the resources it has. It's very difficult to be that kind of a genuine nationalist while uh, as we were talking about earlier, holding universities and the most successful businesses and that sort of thing in such such contempt, and not only holding them in contempt, but seeking to undermine them and to um, disable them in some ways. And uh, so, I think that um, what our nationalists need is, is some nationalism. They need some you know, genuine uh, nation mindedness rather than their uh, parochialism. You know, listen. It occurs to me. You know. Before we were talking about the relative poverty, the comparative poverty of the 1950s, you know, one of one of the things I always harp on with with like college students and whatnot is um, there's very limited utility in comparing the past to the present. Yes. Um, but there's um, incredible utility in comparing the past to the past that came before it. Right. I mean, so like the American founding, you know, in our view is actually this massive step forward, considering what it was improving upon that came before it. And you think about and I haven't really thought about this before, but it seems to me that one of the drivers of the nostalgia for the 1950s is the cultural memory of a bunch of people, northerners and southerners, east coasters and west coasters. Who had gone through the Great Depression and then fought in frickin World War Two. Yeah, and came home, and I'll tell you, 1950s creature comforts feel like luxury compared to a foxhole in you know in the in the Black Forest, right? Yeah. And those guys who came back on the GI Bill and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I hate I hate a lot of generational stereotyping, but you can see how the 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 political culture of the 1950s was such an improvement on what came before it because it was peace and prosperity when those two things really meant something to people. Yeah. You know, peace and prosperity now just doesn't have the same oomph because most people actually do live their lives in comparative peace and prosperity. Mm. Um, anyway, there's a tangent. But- you know, that sort of sobriety is something that I think is really, you know, is missing. Um, other than the fact that I have the same haircut, one of the things that I admire about Eisenhower is just his um, grown up and his, uh, humaneness that goes along with that because he had been in the middle of the ugliest war in human history and knew its horrors and didn't want to repeat them there's a famous story where apparently some someone sent him a memo during the korean war and um suggesting that we use nuclear weapons in korea and then on china if Mm -hmm. necessary and the answer he sent back to them apparently he just scrawled on this memo you boys must be crazy (laughs) <laughs> and we're not even going to talk about that, right? About that. And um, sometimes that's the right answer. Yeah. Well, his his letter the day before D Day, 
you know, pre-apologizing and taking all the blame is about as anti, and I don't mean like in the way we use anti-Trump today, I mean as in the obverse or orthogonal or completely different um, from the Donald Trump we have, right? I mean, like Eisenhower would not think twice about graciously conceding an election. It wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to him to do otherwise, right? And um, it does yeah. just sort of show you the, the the decay that is afflicting us in a lot of ways. Well, and that's also not only a matter, I think, of uh, being grown up and being uh, responsible, but I think the main difference between them as men and presidents is that Donald Trump is a coward and Dwight Eisenhower wasn't. Yeah, well, there is that. Um, all right, so I'm just trying to think. I have tried. You were asking about the toaster. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the big reveal. What's with the burnt toast on the on the front of the? Uh... Well, it came out a little toastier than I think it was supposed to. So this is a piece of Wonder Bread. Uh huh. And uh, the font is kind of based on the Wonder Bread label uh, font. So sort of a white bread uh, thing. Um, in the in the big essay about Kentucky, it ends in uh, Memphis. Um, you know, I take this sort of long, you know, road trip through, through that world. And if you go to Memphis and you sort of look back toward part of Appalachia, you just came from the big thing you see is a giant sign that says wonder bread. (laughs) And that to me seemed, uh, representative, you know, um, I asked him Alberta about this recently because he's been our former colleague. Uh, he's been on the road covering the campaign a great Mm -hmm. deal. You've done, uh, I've probably logged more miles in the last 20 years, but I've stopped less yeah. <laughs> um, than you have. Um, what is your, uh, um, what is your favorite national or regional fast food chain? Oh man. Uh, Taco Villa, obviously. Taco um, Villa. Taco Villa. It's, um, West Texas, Texas panhandle. Mexican fast food. It is um, just really good. Really? Uh, okay. I, I have to say, I haven't had it, so I'm, really, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, and I mean, I think the only two sort of cities of any consequence where you'll find one are Lubbock and Amarillo, where I don't think you've probably spent a lot of time. No. Have you ever been yeah. to either one? I don't think so. You know, if, yeah. if you're Never looking at tech. if you, yeah, I mean, I've only driven across the waistband of Texas once. <laughs> and when I finished it, I said, I'm not doing that again. Um, it is amazing. I mean, Northern Montana, uh, East to West, um, middle Texas, East to West and California, North to South are the, are the not counting anything in Alaska are the yeah. three most impressive grueling one state drives in the country. I think. Yeah. That, uh, Pacific coast highway drive in California is one of my favorite drives in the, in the world. And I like driving, you know, if you if you drive from uh, Las Vegas to uh, Houston, you spend a little more than half of the trip in Texas. I think is that right? Yeah. the The one that always shocks me is driving through, uh, like, if you're driving to North Carolina from DC or anything like that, how big Virginia is. Virginia's a big state. Yeah. You basically spend most of the drive just in Virginia, and it's a long drive. You know. Um, if you're coming into Texas from Louisiana, there's a famous sign near Orange, Texas, I guess. And it says, you know, Orange, seven miles, Houston, 45 miles, El Paso, 962. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've probably told this before on the podcast, but 
when um, I used to drive my wife crazy because every year when we, after we first got married, we'd spend time in the, in the San Juan Islands in the Pacific Northwest. And mm. we'd almost always, until we started varying our routes, um, but even then, at least going out or coming back, we would almost always go through northern Montana. And this is back before Google Maps and that kind of stuff. And I had one of the, we had one of those Garmin's, you know, mm. the GPS thing. And it would always say, in 678 miles, stay straight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would drive my wife crazy by saying, like, 200 miles later, honey, we only have 478 more miles to remember not to turn, you know. <laughs> but it is a soul-deadening kind of drive. Um, world of, you know, I lived in the far north of Colorado for a while in a small town up there called Craig, which is just south of uh, Bags, Wyoming. And um, there sure is a lot of real estate up there. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good places to get lost. Oh, the great thing is I, you know, I used to live in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas. And the great thing about Las Vegas is that, um, or the Nevada is, something like 97% of the land out there in the deserts and mountains is federal land. Yeah. And, uh, but they've only got like three guys that work it. <laughs> There's like four, three or four park rangers for that whole 50 million square miles or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, you're 25 miles outside Las Vegas on a road. You can just turn left into the desert and just <laughs> go. And it's tremendously fun. There's a place out there that's, um, like I, I went in a Jeep and I had to bring extra gas in jerry cans to get there and back. There's a cabin out in the middle of the wilderness that used to be owned by Tennessee Ernie Ford. And um, his family, I didn't want to keep it up, I guess. I think it's called Smith Camp. And so it's technically a state property, but you can go out there and just use it on a kind of first come, first serve basis. But mm -hmm. um, it is so far away that there's, you know, there's no cell phone service. There's, uh, you know, no gas stations, nothing like that. There's a lot of genuine wilderness left in the United States. Yeah, we did this summer with my wife's family a rafting trip down the Snake River in Idaho. Mm. And that whole, was it uh, Death Canyon or Hell's Canyon? Um, uh, there used to be all sorts of homesteaders there. They've been cleared out, they were cleared out about 50, 60 years ago for the most part. But they've maintained a bunch of their cabins. And you can't really camp in them. You wouldn't want to because all sorts of animals have, at least most of them, have in invaded in them. But there are a couple that are now used by volunteer park rangers which i think is a great program yeah. you go for a month and you just use this thing in the middle of the bush and you basically got to bring your all your food supplies you know at the beginning um really depends what month you get though but um yes. one of the really cool things is these homesteaders who were mostly like cheap farmers and that kind of thing they planted all different kinds of orchards all over the place and they've gone wild yeah and so there are wild blackberries that like i'd forgotten that I don't think I ever knew what a blackberry was supposed to taste like. Yes. Um, and wild apples and, and apricots and all of these kinds of things. And it does remind you that it's a really big friggin' country. Cause when you just do the interstate stuff, our brains don't process that. We're not actually seeing more than that tiny red line on a map. And there's just this massiveness to the mm -hmm. country out there. Um, Being from uh, not too far from the rattlesnake capital of the world, I don't get into any body of water that has snake in the name. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, the problem with the, the 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 real problem with the Snake River are the snakes that aren't in the river. Um, yes. I saw my first uh, rattlesnakes in the wild on that trip, and uh, I'll be happy if I don't see any more rattlesnakes in the wild. Um, Speak, I mean, I know we're got to go, but I just want to get it out, get one last thing in here because we were talking about this before. Um, 
what do you think about this? You know, I mean, Matt Iglesias has this new book out, um, but who? Um, I know Matt Iglesias. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, but uh, my old boss Ben Wattenberg, who was doing anti-population bomb stuff, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, he used to make this point too that America is actually underpopulated. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure I want mass influx of, I think digestion is the most important thing when it comes to immigration, like having yeah. time for the culture to take it into account. But, uh, Lyman Stone, um, he made this great point about the, I mean, one of the things I, I'll back up. One of the things I love about the Hispanic turnout for Trump is that many of our friends on the right and also many of our enemies on the right, um, and there's a difference between the two arguments, and that's why I want to make that clear. They've been arguing for years, um, either in racist terms or in reputable, defensible terms, um, that importing immigrants from South America is importing socialism, importing statism, because these people don't have a commitment to democracy and they come in poor and they're going to vote for the democratic party and they push the democratic party to the left and blah, 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 blah. And again, there are respectable, responsible versions of that argument. And there are stone cold racist versions of that argument. Um, either way, what I love about the turnout for Trump is it turns out that he doesn't win Florida, except for the fact that we imported all of these immigrants from these countries that experienced socialism and came here because they didn't want it. And, and so, but what it let me just finish the point. So Lyman made this point, how much better America would be if we opened up the doors to a few hundred thousand uh, Hong Kong and Chinese immigrants who were, who were legitimate, or Taiwanese immigrants, who were legit refugees from communism. Yeah. What do you think about that or any of the other stuff? I think it's a, a fine idea. I've, actually, I think I read something about that suggesting that we just offer a special visa to people from Hong Kong who want to come to the United States. Mm. Uh, we'd be far better off uh, with them without... Yeah, on the subject of, you know, digestion, uh, you know, one of the things I talked about, um, I wrote this big piece about the oil industry out in West Texas. And if you go from, you know, between Midland and Lubbock, which are the you know, two cities next to each other out there, uh, so if you're driving south out of Lubbock, Midland's the next place you come to, you could build New York City five times in that space. Out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Not bother anyone other than a few of those, those rattlesnakes. After the election results came in and the uh, Latino votes for Trump were tabulated out, some of our friends on the left started saying, you know, something that I've been hoping would occur to them for a long time, which is there's no such thing as Latinos. Right. There's no such thing as Hispanic people. Um, Mexican-Americans in Texas aren't even very much like Mexican-Americans in California. They come from different parts of Mexico. They've got very different culture. They've got very different experiences. Uh, Carl Rove actually has some interesting observations on this, you know, because when Mexico had the revolution in the early 20th century, a big chunk of the Mexican middle class just up and moved to Texas. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our population here is the descendants of those folks and informed by that kind of um, bourgeois uh, culture, that kind of middle-class culture. So it's a very different kind of, um, uh, you know, scenario. And yeah, Venezuelans in Florida and Cubans in Florida aren't very much like, uh, you know, Salvadorans in uh, Los Angeles County. They're just not the same people. And, (laughs) <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, the things we don't talk about in American life because they're not polite, but one of the interesting to me dynamics of this, um, in terms of how it affects the immigration debate, and this is something that'd be more familiar to you if you came from, from West Texas, is that 
people from Mexico hate people who come <laughs> from the south <laughs> of their place. I was talking to this guy years ago who's a restaurant owner, and this is before Trump was on the scene or anything. And he was, you know, talking, and we got to get control over this border. We're going to do something about this. And I said, <laughs> aren't, aren't you an illegal immigrant? And he said, well, yeah, we've got people from Guatemala coming in. Now. Guatemala's coming in. And, um, you know, so it's a, it's a complicated mix of things. And um, one of the things about having a big country, a point that I try to make sometimes is that, um, you know, if you're the, if you grew up in the Texas-Mexico border, which I'm not quite from the border, but, you know, it's, it's certainly in that orbit. Um, it's had an Anglo-Hispanic uh, hybrid culture for a long time. We're used to it. It's fine. Border states and border towns look like border states and border towns. The trouble for the country, I think, is when the whole rest of the country starts to look that way. Mm-hmm. I was living in Norwalk, Connecticut, when the first uh, Spanish-language cigarette billboard went up in South Norwalk, and suddenly everyone in Norwalk learned that they had you know, 15,000 Spanish speaking people living there and they hadn't known about it. Yeah. Um, same thing kind of happened in Northern Virginia where they got a large Hispanic immigrant population. And uh, so I kind of like, you know, it's, it's okay to have one Las Vegas in your country or one New Orleans. You don't want the whole country to be like that. Yeah. It's okay to have unassimilated or uh, very distinctive uh, immigrant enclaves in, you know, Calle Ocho in, in Miami, that sort of thing. Um, I think a lot of the distress associated with immigration is the fact that these things that used to be enclaves are now much more widespread than they used to be. And it's funny what people really react to, like uh, Spanish language advertising really seems to push some people's buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, it's just, it's the weather. It's, I've seen it my whole life. Yeah. But um, some people get really, really, um, I don't think they're so much angry about it, but they're just shocked by it. They're suddenly, oh, we have so many people that we're selling stuff now to people who don't uh, don't speak English or who's, preferred language of communication is in English. Uh, and that's, of course, a very American thing. Once it gets to the point where it's affecting business and how we sell things to people, well, now I have to take it seriously. Well, so it's, it's funny you say this because, I mean, uh, I remember you had in a piece a long time ago this thing about how our brains are better at telling apart faces than they are, yeah. um, than our language skills are, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And you made you the point about comparing, I don't know, Chris Pine and Matt Damon or something like that. And you're like, I know exactly that they're different people when I look at them, but I could not possibly explain to you why they're different people, like visually, right? I've been doing a lot of reading, sort of since then, um, you know, in part for my book, uh, about a lot of this brain stuff. And I've really come to the conclusion that, that our brains are far more concerned about language than they are about skin color. Yes. And, um, like the, the way in which, Brits could used to get and still are crazy hung up about these really minor accent differences mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that, that, you know, I talk, I talk about this a little bit with, with John McWhorter, but, um, I think you could ease more racial tensions in this country by strictly teaching a sort of lingua franca of, common tongue English yeah. in the country and racial and ethnic tensions. And that doesn't mean you have to give up your patois at home or your, your distinctiveness at home. And they can be different patois around the country for all I give a rat's ass. But, um, language really does language and accents signify to our brain almost instantaneously other or danger in that mm-hmm. kind of way in a way that like, if you read Paul Bloom's stuff, 
Skin color doesn't, even with babies. Like foreign sounding language freaks out babies far more than foreign looking skin color. And I think we've kind of forgotten that in, um, that in history, that's what a lot of that stuff was. If you go back and you look at where nationalism comes from, it had so much more to do with language than it had to do with ethnicity or, or food or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was a linguistics minor in school. I studied this uh, stuff a lot, um, both from the you know, social and, and, and neurological version of that story. And it is, um, yeah, I think you're, you're on the right path there. But um, I also think there's an interesting sort of moral aspect to this in that uh, not just things like racism, but other kinds of uh, chauvinism and fear of people who are not part of your extended kin group seems to be, you know, an evolved trait. It is something mm-hmm. that we, we come by naturally. Racism isn't something that's learned. Uh, chauvinism is something that's learned. And for a long time, we've always had this uh, rhetoric of things like, well, we can't judge homosexuality morally because it's something that's an inborn characteristic in people, and therefore we have to respect it. What if racism is an inborn characteristic in people? It probably is. Um, because Otherism absolutely is, right? I mean, for want of a better word, right? Just Fear of the other is definitely an inborn human characteristic. Yeah. And I, I, I think that a big part of civilization is helping us to uh, improve on the things that we are naturally inclined to do. Um, I don't want this to be taken as putting homosexuality in the same camp as racism because I don't give a damn about people's sex lives very much. But, um, but just the idea that anything we come by naturally is therefore good is right. nonsense. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the evolutionary record, or if you read Pinker's stuff, um, and I want to be very clear about this, I condemn rape in all of its forms, and and think it is profoundly evil. But when I say when I say to some audiences, if you look at the evolutionary record, rape is pretty natural. It's certainly natural in the natural world among animals and whatnot. People get very very angry because we assume that natural has this connotation of, of, of meaning good or approved or excusable. Yeah. And no, I mean like murder is natural. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like rape is natural. All sorts of things that civilization is about, or the market economy is about, is about channeling, either channeling or denying human nature in positive ways. And, yeah. um, and we just seem to have forgotten that. And there's so much blank slateism running amok these days. Um, it kind of yeah, I crazy. suspect that human beings as a species have been around a lot longer than notions of consent have. I think that's probably at all, true. you know. All right. Well, thank you for consenting to do this. Um, <laughs> and I, there were there were a couple uplifting, more noble moments to end on than our uh, consensus that that rape and murder and terrible things are natural to human beings. But you know, yeah. we've gone on for quite a while. Um, I highly recommend Big White Ghetto. I highly recommend all of of Kevin's books. Um, and, um, I really recommend buying them, um, both because they are worth having and, um, you know, sort of like Tito Puente with, with Bill Murray and stripes where he says, you know, one of these days Tito Puente is going to die and you're going to be able to say, I, I, I've loved this stuff my whole life. You should have the exact same attitude many, many, many decades from now about Kevin Williamson, um, who's really one of the best in the business. And, um, yeah, and he I end on a, on a, on a personal observation before we let the audience go. Sure. So this is an audio podcast and people don't see what's going on, but Jonah, you're doing this in a 
t-shirt that's roughly the same color as your skin <laughs> and the lighting makes it look like you've been just naked the whole time but kind of wearing a necklace um i'm not going to confirm or deny that but that's not an image i want to leave a lot of viewers with so i guess i will deny it um but uh uh and kevin is the guy who's been telling me for years and i've, I've finally tried to start doing something about it that i deserve better enemies and um <laughs> But I don't deserve better friends, so I'm delighted to have Kevin on here, and I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks, Jonah. Talk to you soon. Okay, so uh, Kevin has left the building. Um, or actually, he's still in the building that he's in, but he's left the chat room. Um, always good to talk to Kevin. Uh, he's, it, it takes me a little while. We are, we are sort of a um, tempo mismatch, even though we're so philosophically aligned. He's a very sort of slow and steady, wins the race, even-keeled kind of talker. And um, I have to power through the awkwardness of doing these podcasts by maintaining a sort of high level of energy, which is why um, Chris Steyerwalt is sort of the right match for me energy-wise on a lot of these things. Um, but uh, in substance, I always love having Kevin on. And um, once I sort of get the groove of his... Uh, slow and methodical way of turning the knife. Um, um, I really get into it, as you can tell, because we just did, I just didn't want to let go of the conversation. And um, I do really do recommend uh, Big White Ghetto and really all of his books. Um, and uh, and he's one of these guys. I just you know, I mean, I have my disagreements with him, but um, you know, I I admire. People, I, I admire writers these days in this climate and with the incentive structures in this business um, these days who who hold on to their integrity. And I can't really think of somebody who's done a better job of it than Kevin has, um, because he's truly willing to piss off um, his biggest fans from time to time, and that's that's hard to do. Um, and it takes it takes integrity and conviction to do it. So anyway, uh, thanks to Kevin for being on. Thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully we'll do the solo remnant thing tomorrow and um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.